Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Warby Parker. Hey, eyeglasses shouldn't be hard to buy, and Warby Parker is here to help. Head on over to warbyparker.com slash goodseats and order your free home try-on kit. Right now, five pairs of glasses to try on for five days with no obligation to buy. Try on the frames, impress your friends, pick the one or ones you like, and send them back. Warbyparker.com slash goodseats for your free home try-on kit. Here's our show. Budweiser, a proud sponsor of the Kansas City Royals, would like to take this time to salute our nation's soldiers and veterans. Tonight, we salute Bob Motley. Bob is a rare historical figure in baseball and the military by being the only living umpire from the historic Negro Leagues, and he has also served his country as a United States Marine. After receiving a Purple Heart for his service during World War II, he umpired in the Negro League for the likes of Buck O'Neill, Satchel Paige, Willie Mays, and Ernie Banks. In 2012, he was awarded the nation's highest civilian honor, the Congressional Gold Medal of Honor, for his service during World War II. Bob is a founding member of the Royals Lancers and also serves on the board of directors for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. He is joined tonight by his wife of more than 60 years, Perlene, and his family. Please raise your Budweiser and join us in honoring Bob Motley and all those who keep our nation safe and free. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, friends, how you doing? Let's get this show on the road, shall we? My name's Tim Hanlon, and uh, this is indeed uh, Good Seats Still Available. It's our curious little podcast, our little journey, each and every week, despite all the odds against it, into what used to be in professional sports. I welcome you to the proceedings, and I truly appreciate uh, you uh, honoring uh, me with uh, a little download this week and putting us in your earbuds. We know that you have just on the edge of zillions of choices in podcast land, and uh, I'm uh, tickled pink that uh, you would uh, allow us to uh, hopefully entertain and maybe educate and uh, put a little song in your heart uh, for a little little while with this little episode as, uh, as we continue our journey into... Uh, the world of forgotten sports and especially in the world of uh, professional teams that have uh, come and gone for whatever reasons. And uh, we are uh, excited and very happy to finally be getting back to a gigantic topic that uh, we'd love to delve into much uh, deeper. Uh, and we are excited at the excuse to do so this week with our guest, Byron Motley, as we talk about uh, his father's career as an umpire, a groundbreaking and simply pioneering umpire in the Negro Leagues uh, in a, a book uh, that was uh, published back in 2007 uh, in both printed and in audio form. It is a uh, a delight and a, a revelation. I'm only sorry I uh, hadn't read it until recently. It came out in 2007. It's called Ruling Over Monarchs, Giants, and Stars, Umpiring in the Negro Leagues and Beyond. And it is a uh, a work of both love and passion 
the Bob Motley story, almost oral history, based on his remembrances of his exploits, calling balls and strikes and then some. Uh, in the Negro Leagues of the 1940s and early 1950s, written, compiled, and synthesized through uh, the eyes and ears and the pen of his son, Byron, who is our guest this week. And Byron, uh, a creative uh, renaissance man in his own right, uh, you may have heard him uh, as a backing vocal for great Arista artists like Barry Manilow and Dionne Warwick and uh, a whole host of others. He uh, has a bunch of albums out. Uh, he is a master photographer, a lot of uh, great creative efforts and energies. And of course, well, I don't know, of course, but certainly interestingly, especially for this this conversation, as an outgrowth of uh, of the book that he co-authored with his dad, who sadly passed away about two years ago at the tremendous uh, well-lived age of, of 91, Byron is also in the midst, as you'll hear, of putting together uh, what is probably an overdue documentary uh, of substance about the history of the Negro Leagues and, and also uh, even a separate project in, in the works on uh, the life and times of Effa Manley, obviously a towering figure in the management of Negro League baseball. But we're going to sort of get into kind of the beginnings of, of Byron's efforts and uh, creativity around the Negro Leagues through the, uh, the story of his father's life as an umpire uh, in the Negro Leagues. And, and if that wasn't enough uh, of a story, and certainly it was, you heard that clip there from the Kansas City Royals uh, World Series game in 2014. As a matter of fact, that was World Series game number six. And if you were in the stands, uh, that's what you heard in, I don't know what inning it was. I think it was between the fifth and sixth innings. And I'm not sure that made the national broadcast uh, as well. I'm sure some some call out was, uh, and I'm sure some people are yelling at their devices now going, of course it was, or you know, whatever, but feel free to correct us or give us the specifics of that. But Bob Motley was in the crowd and he was uh, saluted, not only for being a pioneer umpire in the Negro Leagues and and obviously anybody involved in the Negro Leagues as a player, as a manager, as an administrator, or as an umpire, uh, more rarely, I guess, is a pioneer uh, just on that level alone. But this is also a man, Bob Motley, who uh, was a war hero. He's awarded the Purple Heart for, for being injured in combat uh, during World War II. And it's a very interesting story as to how Bob Motley went from being in the Marines and uh, fighting the good fight in a, uh, you know, not so inter uh, racially integrated uh, military nor country, sadly, but how he stumbled into the world of umpiring baseball uh, is directly related to his war experiences. And we're going to get into all of that, as well as uh, uh, not only some of the great stories and, and uh, memories uh, and anecdotes that uh, Byron experienced with uh, his dad growing up and, and in the interview process for this book, uh, but also the years afterwards uh, where Bob continued to fight the good fight, a, a passion. You will hear nothing short of a passion uh, for baseball, for umpiring, for attaining the highest levels possible and a dedication to the job, to the effort of being a professional uh, umpire in baseball. It's a great story. It's it's a wonderful read. And again, it's called Ruling Over Monarchs, Giants, and Stars, Umpiring in the Negro Leagues and Beyond. And, and you will find a link to that book uh, on our website, of course, at goodseatstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode, number 131. Oh my God, 131 episodes. Well, search up this episode. And while you're listening to it again, uh, you can uh, click on that link and head over to Amazon and purchase yourself a copy, why don't you? And uh, it's a tremendous read. It's great. Some good, uh, interesting photography in there, and the cover alone is, is worth the price of admission. Uh, as you see, the colorful Bob Motley calling the 
calling a play at second base, it's it's just fantastic. You can also, however, get it as an audio book. And uh, ironically, that's how I first discovered uh, this book, this story, and Byron and Bob's uh, uh, work here. You can, of course, use our little code to uh, get uh, it for yourself uh, via Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and uh, you will get one free month of the Audible service, including one free audiobook download. And why not use that free audiobook download credit for Ruling Over Monarchs, Giants, and Stars, True Tales of Breaking Barriers, Umpiring Baseball Legends, and Wild Adventures of the Negro Leagues, written, co-written by Byron Motley, uh, told through the eyes, were actually uh, the, the original stories by Bob Motley and is narrated by Richard Allen. Uh, I can't think of a better way to uh, get a free audiobook, try the Audible service, and uh, you can cancel at any time. And uh, if you do so, well, hell, you'll be able to keep that book or whatever other book you decide to download, for God's sakes, on your device as long as your uh, device lives. Uh, so it's kind of a no-risk uh, proposition. Matter of fact, it is a no-risk proposition. So why don't you give it a try and use this book, this audiobook, by Byron and Bob Motley to give Audible a try. It's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And uh, just uh, fill in uh, all the information there. And voila, one free month and a free audiobook uh, download is yours. Uh, for the taking. We thank Audible, of course, for their sponsorship of the show. And we thank you for listening, not only hopefully to that uh, audio book, if you download it, thank you and God bless, but also hopefully uh, this great conversation uh, that we had just last week uh, with Byron Motley. And uh, here's our fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I know I did. Here it comes. Why don't you give our audience a, a bit of a background about you, first of all, because you're sort of like a, a creative renaissance man, as far as I can tell. And then maybe we can backwardly get into uh, the story of your dad and the book and all that kind of good stuff, if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, well, my background is mostly in music. Um, I grew up in a musical household. Where my mother played piano almost every night, and we'd sing my dad to sleep, <laughs> and he'd request us to go sing him to sleep. And uh, so uh, I grew up like that, and I have a master's degree in music and voice, uh, and uh, I performed, um, my gosh, I performed with a lot of uh, artists singing background for people like Dionne Warwick and Barry Manilow and Barbara Streisand and Natalie Cole, Celine Dion, uh, and a few other folks. Now you, you've been in, and, a lot of, uh, in a lot of studios, right, with probably a lot of great stories to, t to tell on another podcast, I bet. Yeah, some interesting stories. Yeah, I've, I've got have some variant. Not so much about too many artists, other than the time I worked for for uh, Nina Simone. I was her personal assistant for only two weeks, and that's all I could handle because <laughs> she was uh, the, the ultimate. <laughs> she was a hand. She was a handful. That was back in uh, in uh, when I was like twenty two, twenty three. So I was pretty naive, <laughs> and she put me through the ringer. But yeah, that was. Uh, quite an interesting time. And uh, yes, yeah, so I've done that. I've also been working on a uh, uh, documentary for several years now about the Negro Baseball Leagues. And I've interviewed people like my father, of course, and Buck O'Neill, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, um, gone as far as interviewing people like Colin Powell, um, Walter Cronkite, Maya Angelou, uh, just a variety, a variety of people. Probably oh, well over 100 people I've interviewed for the documentary. 
and we're looking for a home for it now to uh, hopefully get on the air or get it ready for uh, next year for 2020 for the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues. And um, so that's kind of me in the nutshell. I'm also a photographer. I uh, have a published book uh, on Cuba, my second home, I call it now. Um, the book is entitled Embracing Cuba. It has eight chapters and over 200 photographs from Cuba. And um, yes, I've been documenting the country for about 12, 15 years now. I've been going to Cuba as often as possible. So uh, I, I love the place. And uh, so that's some of the creative things I'm involved in and um, some other things as well. But that's kind of quickly in a nutshell of um, some aspects of my life. Well, it's clear that uh, that obviously the uh, the film. So uh, hopefully if we don't uh, screw up this interview too much, you'll you'll come back and maybe promote that as well. Once you're uh, once that's in the, the distribution shoot. Absolutely. But I got to think that that a lot of that work either emanated from uh, the book or maybe even before the book as as part of your evolving relationship with your dad, who who uh, recently passed but is, you know, lived a, a very long and healthy life. I'm curious to kind of, sort of, as we circle sort of the start of this, how did you, as you were growing up, right, with all your creative endeavors and artistic interests and college and all that kind of stuff, how did you and when did you uh, kind of sort of stumble across or, or know about your dad's past, in particular, his baseball exploits? Well, you know, it's interesting because growing up, my dad really took all that for granted. It was really no big thing, no big deal. I think as people in general have discovered that people just live their lives and it's things unfold. And, you know, yeah, I did this, I did this, and I did that. But it's really not a big deal because it's part of who they are and what they did. So, you know, the fact that he was one of the first black Marines and he had umpired in, in the Negro Leagues for several years with these great players – he really just took it for granted. It was just kind of like what he did. And, but he loved telling stories. And I would, I would guess like every six months, maybe once a year, he'd go down memory lane and start you know, talking about you know, his days in World War II or his days in the Negro Leagues. And you know, he'd entertain us. You know, my mother and I would be just on the floor laughing with some of the stories that were just hilarious. But again, it was just like, oh, this is kind of what I did, but no big deal didn't realize he was a history maker. He had no I, no concept of that because it was just, you know, he's just this guy from Alabama who just happened to do these things and be around these great players. And uh, it really was not until the Ken Burns documentary back in, what was that, 96, 1996, I believe it was. And uh, Ken Burns actually went to Kansas City where my dad was living at the time and interviewed my dad along with Buckle Neal and several other people. And I remember him calling me and telling me, he said, you've heard this 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 um, filmmaker named Ken Burns. And I said, sure. He says, well, he's, I just did an interview with him for this documentary. He's doing on baseball. And it's like, Oh, okay. But it was, no, cause he's did an interview. And then lo and behold, this documentary comes out and they do one hour in the Negro baseball leagues. And the story just blows up. I mean, makes a superstar uh, buckle Neal and in the, in the sports world and people for the first time really, understood or even knew about the Negro Leagues. But these have been stories I've been hearing all of my life, of course, since the time I was a, a child. 
And, uh, but, you know, none of the players that I knew of, including Buck, um, before this documentary, really understood the impact they had on the world of baseball. They had no idea, no concept of it. They were just out to play a baseball game, make a little money, and have a whole lot of fun, as I was saying. And so when this documentary came out and um, people you know, started getting phone calls and you know, wanting more information, that was the first time I think I know that my dad and these other players really realized that they were a part of history. And I remember several years ago, maybe I think even before the documentary came out, yeah, maybe 10 years before the documentary came out, uh, the Kim Burns piece, that we were at dinner one night, my dad, my mom, and a friend of ours, and my dad was telling this, my friend these stories. And he's like, Mr. Miley, you should write a book. You should write a book. My dad, oh, yeah, whatever. But kind of went one one ear and out the other. Well, after the Ken Burns piece came out and all this interest started taking place, um, I'll backtrack just one step. When I saw the documentary, I thought, well, this is really great. But these are not the stories I heard growing up as a kid. This is a nice overview of what the Negro Leagues were, but there's so many more stories. There's my father's stories that would would have really made this thing, this, this documentary pop. And uh, that's when I first got the inkling that somebody needs to do a documentary about the Negro Baseball Leagues. I mean, a complete, full-on documentary. One hour, the Kim Burns did it's great, but it's it's not enough. So about four or five years later, I was having dinner with a friend of mine in New York and telling him my father's stories. He's a a filmmaker, and I thought, well, maybe maybe he's the guy to do this. When I finished telling him my father's stories, he said, you know, as much as I love this and I'm entertained by this, he said, I'm not the person to do this film. He says, you are. Well, I'd never done a film in my life. I'd never even thought about doing a film. And um, so several years later, I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do this. And I started embarking on the journey of interviewing players, former players, uh, widows, children, heads of state like Colin Powell, and putting together this documentary, which I said, like I, like I said, hopefully will come out um, sometime in 2020. Uh, did I answer some of your question? I kind of rambled on there. So, so it, it, took, it, there. It, it took that opus by, by Ken Burns, and he's got another one coming up with uh, country music, I hear, uh, in a couple of weeks. It seems to me that seemed to be like... Oh, the, that, that, was, that, was the turn, that was the turning point for everybody. Everybody. Again. But including you, everybody. Though, because you went back to your, and, what I guess were just personal stories and, and just family just, you know, conversations that all of a sudden said, wait a minute, treasure trove here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is across the board. I'm, I'm, I, I, this is from discussions with a lot of the former players. Nobody really gave it a thought until the Kim Burns piece. Now, I will say that um, now the Negro League Baseball Museum was founded in 1997, a year after the Kim Burns piece. But that had been in the works for several years to get that museum up and going. And they had a small storefront um, across the street from where it is now that, that actually my father and Buck O'Neill helped start. They paid for it, basically. So that was already in the motion for that. But again, nationally and really in the, in the consciousness of everybody, they didn't realize what they had created back, back in the, the 20s, 30s, and 40s. They just, it just was a baseball game for them. Uh, but like, things kind of came together around 1996, 97, uh, and the, the Kim Burns really helped to 
uh, propel that museum forward and and really the, the history and legacy of what the Negro Leagues has become. So, all right. So the light bulb goes off. How do you, how do you, I guess, for lack of a better word, how do you re-engage with your dad? Uh, I'm not even speaking about what the, whatever the relationship was. I, I, I assume there was some level of closeness of the relationship generally, but, but how do you now with that sort of framing in mind, how do you go back and, and say, Hey dad, uh, how do we, I don't know, how do we maybe more memorialize some of these great stories into the real history or the better or more full flavored history of the Negro Leagues, maybe through your eyes and then some. Yeah, well, you know, I was, my dad and I always, my dad and I always had a very close relationship, so that was great. And um, when the Kim Burns piece came out a couple of years later, and you know, my dad's doing interviews for people, and there was more interest. I said to my dad, said, you know, you should think about doing. You really should probably think about doing a book. So I contacted three of the top Negro League historians at that time. And I said, look, I said, the players get all the, the recognition. The umpire is always forgotten, always forgotten about. And somebody needs to write a book about my dad. I said, would you be willing to write the book about my dad? They all three were busy with other projects, you know, focused on the players. So nobody wanted to do it because, you know, the, the umpire is, you know, who cares about the umpire, right? Most people hate the umpire anyway. So I just, I woke up one day and I thought, you know what? If nobody's going to write this book for him, I'm going to write it. So I called him up. I've never written a book in my life. I never even thought about writing a book in my life. I think I failed English <laughs> at one point. And, and uh, well, my, my, my teacher, she would have just, Mrs. Williams, may she rest in peace. If she knew that I had written, had written two books now and working on the third, she would just, I think she would be, she's probably dancing up in heaven thinking about it right now. Anyway, um, yeah, so I contacted my dad and said, let's uh, think about, you know, doing something. And then I was at a uh, Negro League conference, I think I was in Cleveland, like, a, like in 2006. And, you know, this it kind of been in my mind to maybe do something. I was at this conference and a publisher um, I won't name the publisher because I didn't end up going with them, uh, approached me at that conference and said, hey, would you be interested in writing a, a book about your dad out of the clear blue? And I said, well, yeah, funny you should mention that because my dad and I have been talking about maybe doing something. And um, so he says, well, our publishing company would, would definitely would, would do it. We, we would love to do it. And so I said, okay. So I talked to my dad about it. And he says, okay, well, it's, uh, he says, we, I'll tell you the stories and, you know, you write it. And I said, okay. So we started working on it and finished the draft. And I sent it off to the publisher. And I thought, well, you know, if they're interested in it, there's got to be other publishers who are interested in it. <laughs> so I started shopping around and um, actually went with another publishing company, which was called Sports Publishing at the time. They were based out of uh, Champaign, Illinois. And they made a better offer, so it went with them. And um, they published a book in 2007. And then they actually went out of business in 2012. But the, uh, uh, the publishing company who took over that publishing, took over sports publishing is Skyhorse Publishing. And they reprinted the book, renamed it, um, made an ebook out of it because they really believed in it. So, uh, so the book has had two, two publishings. Um, it's still available through Skyhorse um, as an ebook and also as a 
printed hardcover, which is interesting that um, when it was when it first when it first came out, it was a softback uh, through Sports Public Publishing, and then Skyhorse made it into a hardback, which is usually usually the opposite way around. But if you are interested in getting the book, make sure you get the hardback version because it's more of the recent version. It has some updated information uh, since 2007. So the 2012 version has more updated history with my, my dad's um, with his history. Well, so I, I think even the premise is even is unique, right? Because you kind of mentioned, I think, two, two of the major sort of components of, of why it's different, right? One is, you know, to be fair, most of the the works even still today uh, around the Negro Leagues are uh, some 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 great books out there, but a lot of them are very deep and research driven, and uh, you know almost sort of on the long, along the lines of theses and uh, you know master's degree and, and PhD dissertations and, and whatnot. And and sure, all that documentation really important. Uh, you know, there's always new bits and pieces sort of being unearthed, but it can also be very dry, right? And the other issue is that. Yet, you know, to your to your point earlier, right? Players certainly, maybe administrators like the Effa Manleys. We've had a conversation about her and her life, of course, very seminal in in, in the history of as a female, as an African American, as a baseball executive, all, all that kind of stuff. But but through the through the lens of an umpire, right? Even in the quote unquote major leagues, right? The idea of of the umpires' stories is still a relative rarity. So I, I think there's only been one or one or two in the majors. There's I think only one or two in the majors about right. the so umpires. I, I, I can see yeah. Where, yeah. I can see where this becomes a very interesting lens on sort of two different levels. So let me ask you this. How did your dad even become an umpire in the first place? Right? Here's a guy who's in the Marines. He's fought in World War II. He wins a purple heart for God's sakes. Serving his country and, and not in the most, shall we say, racially harmonious times. How does he get into baseball and umpiring at that? Well, he got an umpire because he was a terrible baseball player. <laughs> uh, <I think laughs> Those who can't play that umpire, is that it? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But he was not very good. He thought he was, and he tried out for the Cleveland Buckeyes, and he was like, oh, 17 or 18, had never played in a game in his, in his life, just decided, oh, I'm going to be a pitcher. I'm going to... You know, pitched for the Cleveland Buckeyes in the, in the Negro Leagues. I had never really played before, but loved baseball. And uh, went out and tried out for this team and uh, promised that he could pitch. And back then, you know, if you said you could do it, you know, you, you got a shot. So he pitched for not even one inning for the Cleveland Buckeyes in his adopted home of Dayton, Ohio, where he moved when he was, uh, like I said, 16 or 17 years old. And he did okay at the tryout early that morning, but when it came to game time, he said that everything everything he threw up to the plate was either a base hit or a home run. And he said finally the skipper came running out of the dugout towards him, ready to strangle him. And my father said he ran past him farther with his uniform on before the the, the umpire before the uh, the manager could could get could get him, and he ran out of the ball field with his uniform on and never looked back. Because um, he had he really embarrassed embarrassed himself, and um, <clears throat> so, but like I say, he still loved the game. And when he got injured in World War II, he was in the the um, the Marine Hospital, and you heard a baseball game going on um, off in the distance by some other sto- soldiers who were either on break or who had been injured themselves. And so he said so he hobbled down there on his crutches. And you know to, to watch, and they 
when they saw him and said, Hey, you know, Motley, we need a, an umpire. Can you, can you umpire? He said, yeah, sure. I can do it. My father was the type of person that you said, can you, it was always, yes. There was never hesitation. He, his theme was you never take no for an answer and get an opportunity. You go for it. And so he had never umpired before, but you know, he knew what the duties of an umpire were obviously. And um, that was his first game umpiring there uh, for these Marines. And he said he loved it. He found, he found his true calling because he liked to be in control anyway. And he realized that being the umpire, although the catcher and the pitcher thinks they're in control of the game. No, 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 no. The umpire is the one who controls every aspect of the game. You stop and think about it. It is so true. You cannot play a game, a real legit game without having the umpire there. So he found that was his passion. He just fell in love with it. He um, got sent back on the front lines when they, when he came back to the, when he came back from umpiring that game, the nurses, I thought you were, I thought you were injured, Motley. He says, well, yeah, yeah, I am. And she, he said the next day he was back in the front line. She reported that me had to go back, back serving, uh, back on the front lines. But um, so that's how he discovered his passion for umpiring. And then when he moved, when he moved to Kansas City uh, after being discharged, honorably, honorably discharged with his Purple Heart, he moved to Kansas City because he had a sister living there. And he heard about the Kansas City Monarchs who were playing a stone's throw from her house, like two blocks away from her house is where the stadium was, the old um, Muehlbach Stadium. I think it was called Muehlbach Stadium. And uh, so he wandered up there one day. He had got, he had bought umpire gear and all that sort of thing. He's been umpiring kind of locally there in Kansas City, some Sandlot games. And so he went to, on a Sunday, all the league games were on Sundays at, in Kansas City at the uh, stadium there. So he said he showed up one Sunday and he found out where the umpires were going in. He said he got there early in the morning. He didn't know what time they were going to show up. The game was like at 12 o'clock or 1. He said he was at the stadium by like 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning, just waiting with his umpire here, sitting outside where the umpires would have to go in. So he's waiting, 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 and he sees these guys show up, and he recognizes that they must be the umpires and introduces himself. He says, uh, I want to umpire with you guys. I'm an umpire. And I'm like, kid, get out of here. You don't know anything about umpiring. Get your shoe. Get. Because he was like, my, at the time, he was maybe 19, 20, 21 at the most. He's got to be. He's got to be making a living somehow too, though, right? I mean, this is this. Oh yeah, he was. Yeah, he was working. He was working at General Motors. General Motors at the time. Yeah, he worked there for thirty-seven years. So he had, he had, it, it was working there. And um, yeah, so he's the uh, he the umpires turned him down. Said, you know, you're a kid. You don't know anything about umpiring. Get out of here. Because like he said at the time, he was like in his early twenties, and all these guys were in their forties and fifties. They were they were old to him. And. Um, so he said every week since the monarchs were playing, he was showed right back up at the same spot every Sunday with his umpiring gear, waiting, waiting for the chance to umpire. Every week they would say, get out of here. Nope, we don't need you. Wasting your time. And uh, one of the umpires was a guy named Frank Duncan, who was a, a former catcher with the monarchs. Great player, Hall of Fame level player. Uh, was one of the umpires now because he had retired from playing. And so like in the fifth or sixth try when he's hoping to get a break, 
because he's waiting outside the stadium. One, one Sunday, the umpires show up and Frank Duncan's knees were giving out. So Frank says, well, you know what? You know, my, my knees aren't quite up to the, come on, come on, come on, you umpire third base today. And the rest is history. He said that's all he wanted was that first break to get on, get on the field. And you have to remember back then, it wasn't like, you know, if they, if, if they found somebody they thought was a good enough player, you know, they go to the, the player's home, ask for the parent's permission, and the kid would, would go from school right there, right there. You know, it wouldn't mean, well, could come back in a week or two. You would get on the bus and travel. You would you'd go, uh, you know, if the, if the parents gave permission. And so, you know, that's, it wasn't so odd that my father got that chance that one Sunday, um, you know, to, to be invited. Okay, okay, come on, just umpire one game and, you know, just, just get this kid, you know, this little, <laughs> just give him this chance and maybe he'll, maybe he'll, maybe he'll get out of here. You know, that's probably what they're thinking. And, uh, but he said he did a great job and they liked them and they say, Hey, come back again next week. Come on back and help us again. And then he said he just said first season, he just kept moving around the bases. And finally, he said when he finally got, because they weren't going to let him umpire behind home plate for a while. But when he finally got behind home plate, he said that's all he needed. And he put on a show for the fans. He um, was, you know, loud and boisterous. And he wouldn't just call a strike, strike. He would, you know, he would scream out so the entire stadium could hear him. um, Because he wanted to prove that he could... Uh, be on par with these with these uh, veterans who were all former players. He was the only one who was not a former player. These are all former players with the Monarchs. And then after a couple of years, he became the chief umpire in the leagues and um, would travel around the country with mostly the Monarchs and um, uh, Birmingham Black Barons and uh, Memphis Red Sox. And, um, you know, became became the chief umpire in the league. And um, created his own history. He really, he really just he made his own history. Just made it. He he took his own job is, is basically what he did. Because you know most people are after being turned down that first time. The, the big guys say, you know, we don't need you. Don't come around us anymore. Most people wouldn't go back. He was persistent and went back and back and back until he got that yes. And he never looked back. And now he has a statue in the Negro Negro League Baseball Museum. So that shows you what persistence can do. All right, we'll be back with our conversation in just a moment. But first, a message from our friends at Warby Parker. Uh, I must tell you, friends, I cannot stand the process of getting eyeglasses. Uh, It's something that I've uh, luckily avoided for most of my adult life, but it's unavoidable now. And the process of going into a store, uh, meeting an optician, trying on frames, not knowing what the hell I'm doing uh, and having no fashion sense whatsoever. All of the whole process, completely intimidating. And that's why I was attracted to Warby Parker in the first place. And uh, you uh, can uh, do what I did and avoid the hassles uh, and the embarrassment and just the sheer frustration of the process by trying on the frames at home. All you got to do is go to warbyparker.com slash good seats and order your free home try-on package. Uh, what do you get? You get five pair of glasses, five pairs of glasses, I think is the appropriate uh, English way to say that. And you get to try them on for five days with uh, for free with no obligation. And you try them on for your friends, your family, your loved ones, whomever. 
and see if they like uh, what you think you might like. Uh, obviously, you can you can see what kind of frames you like by going online first, by uh, answering a few questions uh, and choosing some of the frames you think you might uh, enjoy the most. Uh, they come to you in a uh, prepaid and uh, uh, return shipping uh, situation there. You try them on, and I will tell you, uh, it worked well for me. I tried on five pair at home with my uh, my wife and two daughters. The four first ones I tried on, they could not stand. I thought the first two or three actually looked pretty darn good, but they said no, and they win. That fifth pair, however, oh boy, seems like I hit the uh, the jackpot, and that's the one we went with, and we sent it back in with my prescription, and voila, about a week later, I got great sun uh, sunglasses. Well, that's next, but uh, I got great eyeglasses from Warby Parker and the price, you can't beat it. There's no middleman, shall we say. Great frames, uh, great styles, and the process could not be easier. Again, for you, our listeners, you can do the same thing. Head over to warbyparker.com slash good seats. Take the quiz, get your five iframe glasses situation set up for you, have them set to you, and uh, enjoy the process as I did. Fear no more uh, the process of getting great prescription glasses. WarbyParker.com slash good seats. Try them out. You will love them as I have and still do. All right, let's go back to our conversation. Here it comes. So what do you think drove your dad to, to stick with the umpiring thing and then become such a showman? Because clearly he became almost a, a, a mini star attraction himself along with the players. Oh, he was, yeah. Yeah, oh, he, he absolutely was. Um, I've talked to people, players, and um, one former widow of a player who, you know, they told me how entertaining he was. I said, you know, your dad was just, you know, he came out wearing his, his, his polished Stacy, what they say, Stacy Adams shoes. You know, um, you know, he'd, he'd be ready. He just, he loved, he loved that control. He loved being, when he was behind the, he said, umpiring the bases is okay. But, you know, to be behind home plate, he said, to call a ball and strike, he says, oh, just get all over you. Just feel it all in your bones. I could, I could hear him saying it right now. How, how it just, he said he'd rather umpire a ball game than eat a meal. And I, he was passionate about it. He just loved it. It was his, it was his calling. He, he found his purpose. So, so to speak, um, from being injured of all, from being injured when he got shot in the toe uh, in World War II, who, who would ever thought that you'd find your 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 calling and your passion when you're hobbling around with you know your big toe shot off? It's also interesting timing too, because this you know we're talking about I guess what the late 40s, early 50s, right? Uh, late period? 40s, yeah. Okay, so that's also though strangely the the time when the Negro Leagues were sort of waning right to jack jackie robinson obviously becoming the first uh, uh major league player to you will cross the barriers and, and integrate in the major leagues and stuff so arguably it was the beginning sort of of a arguably slow kind of trailing off of the negro league so it sounds like your dad certainly made the most of the opportunity for a bunch of years uh, i gotta think though he was also either in the back or maybe in the forefront of his mind maybe looking even at a bigger prize about sort of going to the big show if and when oh, all that sort of oh, absolutely that that was his that was his ultimate goal was to get to the bigs and uh, he was the first black to go to umpire school um, back then the major leagues were stricter than they were obviously than the Negro leagues uh, at the Negro leagues you'd show up and umpire a game but then in the major leagues you had to you had to prove your worth 
And no major league umpire had gone to the major leagues without going to umpire school first. So my father, um, starting in the late 40s, tried to go to umpire school. But because um, of segregation, they weren't allowing any black umpires into any umpire school in the country. And there weren't that, there weren't that many of them anyway. I think there was two or three. But he would write to them every year and ask for permission to come to school. And every year was no. And as he explained it, he said, um, especially in Florida, uh, this the school he really wanted to go to was the Al Summers uh, School, which is now the Harry Harry Windelstadt. I believe that's how you say his name. Hey, yeah, 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 sure. Empire. Very famous empire, sure. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's his uh, his school now. But yeah, my father said he wrote to them every year for like ten years, and they actually said, "Nope, we don't allow black. We don't allow blacks." Now, finally, no, I said that for, for a second. So uh, we get to the to the, the punchline in a second. But so, OK, obviously, he's persistent. We've already proven that he doesn't take no for an answer. But 10 years of that, number one, has got to sort of get to your psyche. Number two. Oh, absolutely. But absolutely. number two, I, I'm, I'm it just it, it it's again, hindsight. I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just going back and so, so, you know, eyebrow raising for all this stuff. The, the 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 sport itself is in the midst of integration, right? Players are by that time starting to really fully make the jump into major league baseball. The Negro leagues are on, yeah. in decline. They don't, you know, the segregation thing is waning away, thankfully, but why not on the umpiring side? What, what, what do you think that was? I think, I think, I think because again, I think because the umpire is in control, that's a subconscious, I think that's the subconscious thread of that. Um, and you have to remember the first black ump. Okay. So, um, Jackie Robinson, 1947, broke the color barrier. The first black coach was uh, Buck O'Neill in 1960. That's 13 years after Jackie Robinson. The first uh, black umpire wasn't until 20 years after Jackie Robinson, and that was Emmett Ashford. So you're talking about 20 years after Jackie Robinson before they allow an umpire. And then the first black manager comes along, what, 1975, was it? With um, uh, was it Frank Robinson, nineteen seventy five? Am I correct on that? And then even ownership, right? Which is even longer still, right? So well, they, 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 they still, still. I mean, you got Max Johnson with one percent. I mean, whatever he has, you know, two percent, whatever, you know, low percentage. But yeah, so you're you're looking at twenty years after Jackie Robinson that they allow one umpire, one, and then another one doesn't come along for another twenty years. 10, 20, 30 years, nothing like that. Not 30, but another 10, at least another 10 to 15 years. So, yeah, that was a very slow process to uh, integrate the first black umpire. Now, my father thought that he would be it. He, you know, he really wanted to be. He kept pressing on. He made it to the Pacific Coast League and umpire with Emmett Ashford in the, in the Pacific Coast League for uh, a few years. And then I think my father says because he was in the Midwest – in Missouri, and Emmett Ashford was was on the coast in California, uh, and had been had been umpiring in the Pacific Coast League longer than my father. Was, um, maybe what twenty years older than my father, so you know he was he was older, and had paid more dues, I guess you could say, and was a damn good umpire. My father said he, he said he was amazing. Um, and my father said that when they umpired together in the, my father said he was already himself was already outrageous as an umpire, 
he said, but when he umpired with Emmett Ashford, he says, Emmett was even crazier than he was, even more flamboyant. Matter of fact, he said the first game they umpired together, um, I think it was in either San Diego or somewhere. He said, my father said that Emmett was the, the uh, home plate umpire. He says, so they walked out to the field, the four, the four umpiring crew. This is in the Pacific Coast, like the minor leagues. And the majors would never allow this. He said, they walked out to the field, got to home plate. Emmett took his breast protection and his face mask and put them down on the ground and took off on a dead shot running towards center field wall as fast as he could. And he said, what the hell is he doing? Didn't say a word. Takes off running, gets to the center field wall, turns a flip, runs back in. The audience is going, the crowd is going crazy because they knew what, what to expect. My father didn't know if he was going to do this. Runs full steam toward home plate and slides into home. That was his play ball. That's fantastic. That's a, that that's a show. Amazing. That's a show right there, right? But but obviously, that's a show. A little flair, that's a right? Show. I'm yeah. assuming that I'm assuming yeah. he had some Negro League experience as well, right? Well, no, because Emmett never lived, uh, never umpired the Negro League. Oh, in California, and there were no, yeah. So he only umpired basically in um, integrated ball in California. So, and that may have been another reason why he um, was chosen to be the first also, because he had been like Jackie Robinson, and more in that integrated kind of community for longer than, than than my dad had been. But yeah, that's how that that was how flamboyant and what a showmanship. No, Emmett had. My father said, he said, when I saw him do that, I said, my God, I got to step up my game. I got to, I got to really show out now. So they were, you know, friendly, but they were, you know, competitively friendly, you know, trying to one up, one up, one up each other while in the um, Pacific Coast League. But when Emmett got to the, to the majors, he had to, they, you know, they made him tone it down. He still was, he's still pretty flamboyant for a major league umpire at that time. But uh, he still he he toned it down, toned down his act quite a bit. The majors wouldn't would not have. Uh, <laughs> they still wouldn't put up with you know an umpire running full steam and turning a flip and then coming and sliding into home plate. Can you imagine? They they find they probably find him his entire yearly salary. Well, there's a great picture of on the cover on the cover of your book, right? Uh, of your dad uh, looks like almost six feet in the air, jumping up and and. Um, so was that indicative of, of your dad's flair and style? What, what kind of things, were there any signature moves that he was known for in his, his days, both in the Negro Leagues and afterwards with uh, PCL, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the Negro Leagues were all showmanship anyway. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say anyway, but a lot of the players did extra things to entertain the fans. So my father said that he was umpiring first base. And uh, when his style really started to develop, he was umpiring first base, and he kind of kicked up his leg a little bit to call somebody out. And a woman in the stands said, do it pretty for me, baby. <laughs> and he said he heard her say it. He looked over. He said she was kind of cute. He said, so the next time I got a close play, and I kicked my leg up a little bit higher. And the next time, a little bit higher. He said, and the more I did that, the more the fans just went crazy. And so that what really developed his style was uh, when that woman said, do it pretty for me, baby. He was trying to get the girl and trying to show off. So that's, that's how he sounds started. Like every, sounds like every entertainer I ever knew that became successful. That was, it was always about the women, it seems. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep. So he loved, he loved uh, that. So he, so he started jumping up in the air and doing the, almost turning the somersault if he had to. 
And there's another photograph of him where he's down on his knees, practically doing the splits, calling a runner safe. So he just did all kind of things to have fun and to you know, keep, keep the crowd going. So, so what was it in 57 that, from his perspective, his thought process, what, what was it that it happened in 57 that enabled him to finally get into this umpiring school he had long for? Yeah, I think they just began to kind of relax the, the, the laws, then, the rules. And um, so off he went in 1957. He said he couldn't believe it when he got the, the phone call from Al Summers himself and said, you know, yeah, I think it's time, you know, you've been persistent. You know, come on, come on down here. But, you know, I'm not making any promises and you get to be careful because, you know, this is the South and my father's not from the South. I dealt with the South. I can deal with that. I just want the opportunity to, to umpire. <laughs> so he drove down there and uh, almost got hung on his, <laughs> in uh Going through Meridian, Mississippi, they tried to lynch him there when he's minding his own business, trying to drive through town at night. And he said he got to umpire school that first day in Daytona Beach. He was, you know, nervous. Actually, got there in the evening. And he said he went up to the where the I guess they call it the barracks or whatever where the guys were staying. And he said this little crotchety old man was behind the counter. And uh, my father said, you know, I'm Bob Motley here to check in. And the guy literally threw the key at him, his room key. So his room's down the hall. And my father's like, oh, oh shoot, no, this is, this is, this is not going to work out. Because I, I, might, I might have to go back home. <laughs> he's like, he said, if, if Al Summers treats me like this guy treated me tonight, he says, I'm out of here. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm not dealing with this. And the next day, they all gathered to go out in the field. He says, Al Summers came up and gave him a big hug and welcomed him. And then said that was that was um, all he needed to know that he this is where he belonged, and he stayed and graduated top of his class. He was number one, and um, after the season, after the the, the class ended, um, usually all of the top umpires who were the top in the class would be scored well in the field and scored well in the exams. All of those umpires all the ones below him, the top four or five, they all got assigned to like double A or single D. They got assigned somewhere. Um, my father was sent home. Al Summer said, you know, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried to get you placed somewhere in organized ball, but nobody's going to take it. Nobody's taking a black umpire. So I'm sorry, you know, go home and, I'll call you. I'll call you if I get a call. This somebody will use you, but not. I'm, I'm, I've tried, but there's nothing, nothing I can do. Nobody will take a black umpire. So my father drove all the way back from Florida back to Missouri, went back to work at General Motors, and he said that came March of the next year. He says I want to go back to umpire school and do the, the graduate course. So he called Al Summers and said, can I come back and take the advanced course? Al Summers said, come on back, send your money in. You know, of course, he wanted the money. So he said, no, come on back and love to have you back. Went back there again, 1958. Again, top of this class. After this school was over, Summers called him to the office of Motley. Again, I tried. I, I tried. I can't, can't get you placed anywhere. He says, no, go on home. If I get a call, I'll, I'll, I'll call you. Same old song and dance. And um, my father said every time the phone would ring, he'd run to the phone. My mother would run to the phone, hoping it would be Al Summers calling, you know, with a, a placement somewhere. And he said, finally, in, in um, August of 
1959, he said, he had really kind of, he kind of threw it out of his mind. He said, the phone rang and it was Al Summers. And he says, I got an assignment for you. They want you a triple A. It was the first time, the first time that any umpire, white, black, green, yellow, whatever, had gone from umpire school directly to triple A. First time ever. Not even Emmett Ashford got that honor. So that shows you how good my father was and the fact that he, that Al Summers chose him uh, himself. Matter of fact, Al Summers had gotten injured and my father replaced him. Uh, uh, Al Summers, I, I, I'm, I'm just speculating that Al Summers would probably say, you know, I'm, I can't do it, but this is the umpire. I want to do it. And you guys got to give him a chance. So my father became um, the second black to uh, umpire in triple A. Um, um, Emmett Ashford was there already. Um, and um, yeah, so they, he spent a couple of years in AAA and then decided, you know, this, he, he knew that the break was not going to come. He just, he just felt like the break is not going to come soon enough that I need. And I have a, a family to support. I can't just keep, keep living on this, you know, on, on, on a dream that someday they're going to see the light and, and let us in. So he finally left the AAA after two or three years, and um, that was like the early 1960s. And like I said, it wasn't until 1967 that Emmett Ashford finally got into the majors. And then there's an article that Emmett wrote, not wrote, he was interviewed for Sporting News, um, where he's talking about we need more um, black umpires in the majors. And the, the guy that needs to be up here with me is Bob Motley. And that article was in, um, I believe the late, 1960s early. I used to have it. Like, I actually gave it to gave gave it to his daughter, to Emma Ashford's daughter, the copy I had, because she didn't have very much about her father, so I, I shared that with her. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of a in a nutshell how that transitioned to AAA, and then like like I said, he just decided you know, it was not in for the long haul. Uh, to, to hope that they were going to choose a, you know, a second black umpire after Emmett. And they didn't until like the, like late until the 1980s, I believe. Well, look, I, I, I've listened to some of the interviews that your, uh, your dad did uh, in the promotion for this book about, what, uh, 12, 13 years ago. And uh, he doesn't strike me as a bitter person, maybe old age, older age sort of softened that at time. But I, I, I can't imagine, he can't be a human being and not be crushed when... you know. I'm glad you brought that up because what's astonishing about my dad and all of these former Negro League players to a man and the one woman who was still living when, before she passed away a couple years ago to a man and that one woman, not one single one of them had an ounce of bitterness about what happened. Not one of them. And it has nothing to do with old age. It has nothing to do with, like, like most of the time, we knew our place back then. It was just the way things were. They accepted the world for what it was. You know, they knew that they weren't going to get certain things. They knew they weren't going to be allowed certain places. So they, okay, that's what I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy myself over here then. You know, you guys can have all that. I'm going to enjoy myself over here. I'm going to enjoy what I do have. And so these guys were not bitter. My father never, I never heard him say, anything negative about, oh, I could have done that. I should have been in. He never, he never said, he knew, he knew how good he was. He knew he should have been in the majors. He knew that. But, you know, he said, it's a different time. 
the way it was. I mean, Buck O'Neill said the same thing. He has a great quote that says, uh, the quote that says something like, um, I wasn't born too early. I was right on time. You know, it's just, they just threw their place. It just, it's, it's astonishing. I mean, if I don't get my way on the day-to-day basis, I'm like ready to throw things at the wall, you know? And these guys are like, oh, no, okay. Well, it's all right. I've got, I've got this and I got that. That's, that's, that's fine. That's fine by me. Well, that said, though, it's it's pretty clear uh, in the in in what you've de- described and 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 the pieces that I've read from the book thus far, it, it it seemed like he had some pretty interesting times and and some fun doing it, right? And and I got to think, in some respects, especially given he's married with a family and stuff, right? He still he still has pretty some strong elements of being able to to at least live quite a bit of that dream, if not sort of the ultimate prize, right? Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that, you know, the fact that he got any kind of notoriety at all to him was like, what, they're doing this for me? He just was very humble about it and would almost be embarrassed about it. You know, and I, we were, uh, one of the, oh, the last time he was out here visiting me in, in, in L.A., we, uh, I got the Dodgers to honor him. And uh, it's like a few weeks before he passed away, so he's had a little dementia going on, not terribly, but... But he was, he kept looking at me saying, why are they, is this all for me? And I said, yes, it's for you. But, but what, what did I do? I said, come on, you know what you did. He's, he kind of, he got it, like chuckle and laugh. And uh, I said, you know, you're a legend, right? Oh, I'm just a small boy from Missouri, from, from, uh, from Alabama. No, I'm just, I'm just a small boy from Alabama. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, this is all this, they're doing this for you. He said, oh, from, he was really tickled by it, tickled by it. And surprised and, of course, honored by it, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's just a different, a different mindset for those guys back then. Um, and I would venture to say that to be the fact with all of them, at least the ones I've met. And I've met well over – a lot of them past them now, but I've met well over 100 former players that played in the, in the Negro Leagues. And they're all just as humble and sweet and just as – you know, if you gave them a compliment, their eyes would light up. Cause like, oh my God, you're talking about me? Oh yeah, I did do that, didn't I? Yes, it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different thing. It's a different thing. As your it's dad, amazing, it's humbling. Yeah, as your as your dad unfolded his story uh, for you, did, were there any standout names and or teams that kept coming up that he sort of kind of went to and, and said, best of the best or amazingness and stories and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, and what was interesting about how growing up, you know, he would tell these stories. I I kind of locked all this stuff away in my mind, and so when it came down to writing the book with him, I was like, "Well, tell me about this again." He says, "How do you remember that?" And I said, "Well, you told me that years ago." He said, "Well, how did how do you remember that?" I said, "I don't know," but for some reason, his stories really got locked in my mind. So I re- reminded him of a lot of things uh, that he had totally forgotten about. But his all-time favorite player, and he did not have favorites when it came to ball players. I mean, he was a typical umpire to the day he died. I mean, he loved certain players. But he would never say I have a. I would never say he'd never said I have a favorite because he has to be impartial as an umpire. Very impartial. Now um, he did say that the player that he enjoyed enjoyed watching the most. He wouldn't say his favorite. The one he enjoyed watching the most was um, Willard, Willard Brown, who played with the Monarchs and also the, the St. Louis Browns, I believe. 
And um, he said he really enjoyed watching him because he said he would kind of mosey up to the plate like he could barely move. Like he was 90 years old. He said he hit that ball and he'd run around the bases like a jackrabbit. The fastest man I ever saw. He said, but yet he'd walk around like he, you know, like he wasn't going to be able to make it across the street. So he loved Willard Brown, uh, loved watching him. And um, he always said that was his favorite. He also enjoyed um, calling balls and strikes on Satchel Page, of course. And at that point in time, I think um, you know, Satchel was a little bit older. And he says, so Hilton Smith, who was a great pitcher for the Monarchs, he said he was pretty phenomenal also. But uh, my father said that sometimes he would – Call a, call a ball when Satchel thought it was a strike. And, uh, you know, Satchel would you know, kind of mouth off my dad. And my dad said, you know, my, my dad's a former Marine, so he didn't take any crap off anybody. So he says, when he would you know, try to give me some lip, he said, I would just take off take my face mask and give him a look. Like, don't, you know, don't, don't try me because I'll, I'll yank you out of this ball game. And, um, so sometimes he, uh, my, my dad would, you know, call a ball or something in the satchel. I was right. He said, you missed one, um, and my dad took off space. I ain't missed nothing. What you, what you got to say about it? <laughs> so he would stand up the satchel page, you know, and I, I love the story that, um, I don't know if you know the story between, uh, about my dad and Buck O'Neill. No, aside from the fact that they were both featured in the, in the Burns, uh, uh opus, uh, a baseball. Okay. Opus. Yeah. This is, this is one, one story that, Kim Burns really should have told it in the feature. Uh, Buck O'Neill in his entire 70-year career had only been thrown out of a baseball game one time. One time in 70 years. And my father is one who threw him out of the baseball game. <laughs> they um, had a disagreement over a, a play. Um, Buck said it was uh, infield fly rule. My dad said it was a, a close uh, called the plate. I tend to think it was that Buck was right, what it was. And um, so anyway, they had this argument, and I guess Buck said the magic word, probably called him a no good blind MF or whatever. So my father said, you know, throw him out of a baseball game. You're, you're gone. You're out of here. So I don't want to see you anywhere. I don't, when I say you're out, that means you're out of the stadium. I don't, I don't want to look down the dugout and see you nowhere. Because back then they didn't really have, you know, a good good facilities and stuff like that in some of those stadiums. So they were playing in, I believe it was Florida. And after the game was over, my father realized, oh, shit, I ain't got no place to stay. I don't have a, I don't have a rooming house. I don't have anything. So he had to put his tail between his legs and went to Buck and say, hey, Buck, you know, I don't, you know, I don't have a place to stay tonight. Buck said, no problem, Motley, you stay in my room. That's kind of God Buck was. No, let bygones be gone. By, be, be bygones. Just stay in my room. So the father said, got to the hotel. It was a small, dinky, black-owned hotel. And um, got the key. Got there before Buck did. Got the key. Went to the room. There's one little tiny bed in the room. One tiny bed in the room. He's like, oh, hell. So he stopped on one side of the bed that night and Buck slept on the other in the same bed at the same night after my father had thrown him out of the, out of the baseball game. <laughs> well, that, if that's not a scene from a movie, I don't know what would be. It's incredible. It's impre- incredible. Yeah. He said, the next morning, he said, I got up as early as I could and got the hell out of there. He said, but you know what? He says, Buck and I never talked about that one time since that 
since that 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 happened. But they actually did go on uh, an interview. They did an interview with um, MLB Radio several years ago. Several years ago, years ago, and they talked about that. Um, what had happened that that evening? And they were still still arguing about if it was a close play at the plate or the infield fly rule. Hilarious. Well, it also speaks to, I think, uh, and this is my inference, uh, but maybe you heard it more more explicitly from your dad, that uh, it, it's, it seems to me like there was, despite the odds, despite the, the challenges of being African-American at that time, regardless of your baseball player or not, for God's sakes, that there was a, 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 a sort of a, a level of camaraderie, frankly, maybe born out of necessity, but just simply a survival mechanism in some respects. Uh, but it does seem like that there was plenty of good naturedness along the way, despite some of those. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but my dad had to, he had to travel on the bus of the ball teams, with the players, because back then, you know, the, the players and the leagues weren't going to pay for the umpire to travel on his own. So he had to travel from town to town on the bus with the, with the ball players. And um, he did, does talk about in the book um, <clears throat> Chronicle about the time that one of the players, Hank Bayless, tried to kill my father on the bus because my father had um, – he didn't agree with the call my father had made. And uh, they were on a bus somewhere in the south, and my father said he looked up middle of the night, and there's Hank Bayless over him with a big big old butcher knife going to stab him. And uh, he said Buck O'Neill saved his life that night. And uh, basically told Hank Bayless to be harm that umpire. He says, you, you're, you're a fool and you'll never play in this league again and you'll be in jail and put that knife down. And my father said they, actually, they fought pretty good. And my father also said that he would always sit in the back of the bus, the very last of the bus, last row of the bus, just to keep an eye on the players to make sure they weren't going to try any funny business. He said he always kept his, his face mask in his hand as his weapon to use in case he got into an altercation. And he said that face mask came in handy that night when Hank Bayless was trying to kill him. <laughs> and uh, I, I actually met Hank Bayless's daughter um, about 10 years ago at an event in Kansas City and was asking her about if she had heard that story. She said, no, so I told her she was cracking up. She said, that sounds like my dad. <laughs> my father would cut anybody. She's like, oh my God, I can't believe that. But yeah, so that, that um, so yeah, he, he took his life in his hands, traveling with the teams. And he said from the fans, he said that the fans were worse than the players. They felt you had made a bad call because they'd come looking for you after the game. They were going to kill the umpire, literally, literally. He said one time he came out of the, speaking out of the, sneaking out of the stadium somewhere. And uh, I think we write about this in the book too. Uh, sneaking out of the stadium and somebody says, Hey, aren't you that umpire? And my father said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for him too. Where is he? Where is it? <laughs> so they go on hunting. He's hunting with these people looking for the umpire. And he's actually the umpire because they were going to kill him or at least beat him up real good. And he said that the female fans were a lot worse than the, uh, the, the men fans. He said, the females would, would, he said, they would cut you. He said they took the game really to heart. They were not messing around. They loved their baseball team. He said so he was more leery at the women because um, he said, no telling what they would do to you. But um, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was competitive from a fan level all the way down to the players. 
So they they weren't messing around back then. I think that's I think it's amazing because look here here is a a a, a job a role right which frankly you know is is kind of thankless right because you're making balls and strikes and calling oh very yeah and you're always going to set somebody there's always somebody winning somebody losing uh plus then you layer in the more serious challenges and that would probably defeat anybody you know trying to become a professional umpire and not getting into school and uh you know his war after the war stuff and 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 you know and being in, in a racially divided and, and ignorant in many cases uh, country that uh, in many respects it wouldn't even you know, still couldn't for years, you know, even figure out a way to thank African-Americans who served during the war. Right. So I, it's it's a really interesting testament, this story of your dad on a number of different levels, not just the fact he was uh, an umpire in the, in the Negro Leagues, but but the, the whole sort of composition of him as a guy. Right. Is I mean, you know, it's it's not like many people would want to continue to do this and pursue it, right? There's not like a path to riches here. He must have really had some, you know, deep passion and and a, a level of, I don't know, I guess, uh, order or seriousness. Yeah, he really, he really loved, he really loved it. Um, matter of fact, I told you, he was, he was saying, he was saying this often. Matter of fact, he said this the last time he was at Dodger Stadium, right before he passed away. He said, um, they were interviewing him, they asked him about you know, what umpiring meant to him. He says, he, says, I, he said it again. He says, "I'd rather skip a meal. I'd rather skip a meal to umpire a, a baseball game." That's what he. That's what he loved. He said, "I would not have." I would, he said, "Don't feed me. Let me umpire." That was what he loved to do. All right. Let me let me uh, let me ask you one last question. We'll round it out, and then I'll let you promote uh, in earnest uh, both the book and everything else. So entering into this this dialogue with your father in the preparation and the creation of this book, what did you think you knew about him? Or frankly, what did you sort of learn in that process that truly surprised you? I mean, obviously, you grew up with the stories and whatnot. But, you know, if you can kind of just encapsulate it all, what what, you know, besides him as a man and all these interesting stories, I mean, was there any sort of like major revelation that sort of came out of this or that, that you would never have guessed or thought about uh, prior to yes. going through this effort? Yes. Yes. His sense of humor. I didn't realize it was so funny. I didn't realize it was so funny. I really, I didn't realize it this until much later because he was such a discipli- disciplinarian growing up. You know, he was making sure we stay on the right path, do this, do that. You know, we were, we were you know, we were, you know, we, he was just a disciplinarian. So he wasn't very much fun to be around, I didn't think, growing up. Because, you know, we asked permission for that, I had to ask permission for this. But when I got older, really wasn't until maybe mm, maybe twenty years ago when I realized this man is hilarious. And the life of the party. I always thought that my mother was the life of the party and really the fun one, and she was. She was great. But I mean he had a different sensibility, a different level of playfulness and don't let him find your weak spot. You know, you being a, a, a stranger to him and you find your weak spot. Oh, he drew you on that to the point where you'd be like, Oh my God, I gotta get away from this man. Cause he would, he loved to, to, um, to uh, tease people. Um, a cousin of his, I thought about this the other day, he had a cousin, actually my mother's cousin. Every single time he saw her, 
to say, hi, Bob, how are you? He's like, who are you? And he would act like he didn't remember her from, and this is when I was a little kid. I thought, my God, that was hilarious. And he would have her almost in tears and he would act like he didn't know who she was. <laughs> and then we'd get in the car and he'd laugh. I got her again. I got her again. So he had a really just a wry and playful and mischievous, mischievous sense of humor. And um, so in the process of doing this book together, uh, you know, when he would tell me certain stories, he would start laughing before he even could get the story out. You know, he'd laugh for five minutes before he settled down to tell, to tell me the story, recalling certain things. So I think it was just this playful sense of humor, which I, which I really, really honor now. That's interesting, because given, given the life, right, if you look at it from an outsider, right, uh, not the easiest path, and, uh, and, and uh, chosen or otherwise, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, all the more uh, reason why this book is just, uh, frankly, just a, a joy. I, I'm, I'm sorry that I only oh, thank you. years after uh, its initial publishing, but hopefully uh, our, our little audience here, actually, it's uh, not so little anymore, believe it or not, will hopefully discover it if they haven't uh, already uh, put it on their bookshelf or, or listened to it. Uh, uh, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of a, a promotion for it? And uh, importantly as well, what you think is going to happen with uh, what you hope to have happen with uh, the documentary, uh, as well as your other exploits outside of uh, Negro League Baseball. Well, just keep doing some great things and um, making my own history here and um, making some good entertainment um, showcases for people to enjoy through my music and through my filmmaking. Um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, actually we're have some uh, good news on the front with the uh, documentary. We're talking to some people now about, about that again. Um, so yeah, get this documentary completed. I'm also working on a feature film about Effa Manley that um, Penny Marshall, um, my friend, the late Penny Marshall, who directed A League of Their Own and a lot of other great pictures, uh, films. She was actually attached to direct and produce uh, the Epimanley project that we couldn't couldn't quite get it off the ground. She was still with us, but I think she she's watching over us, and hopefully we're gonna get this uh, Epimanley project up and going here soon as well. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to create as much great entertainment outlets for people to not only educate them to what these great people did and accomplished, but also entertain them as well. Our thanks to Byron Motley. Fantastic conversation. We love doing these kinds of episodes. Obviously, the closer we can get to first-person remembrances, the better. Of course, uh, we're uh, unfortunately not able to talk to Bob himself. He uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years back. Although a tremendously long and, and uh, varied and uh, a tremendous life lived at 91 uh, and change years, God bless. But uh, we are thankful for Byron for uh, telling us uh, all about uh, the process of putting this book together and the uh, uh, the labor of love uh, of a tremendous story, as you've heard. And uh, I, I can't recommend it uh, enough for you to go find a copy for yourself and enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, it's called, again, Ruling Over Monarchs, Giants, and Stars, True Tales of Breaking Barriers, Umpiring Baseball Legends, and Wild Adventures in the Negro Leagues. It is co-authored by Messrs. Motley, that being Bob the Senior and Byron the Junior. It is a fantastic book. You heard uh, Byron mention you probably would best 
to be getting it in hardcover form. Uh, you will find a link to that hardcover version on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 131 with Byron and uh, you will see the link to that. Uh, we'll also send a link to you there as well, or you can go directly to get it in audiobook form, as you heard earlier, from Audible, our pals there, and you can go there at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats to sign up to get one free month of the Audible service, as well as a free audiobook download. When you sign up, you can cancel at any time. It's yours to keep, even if you cancel the service. Uh, as long as your device lives. And uh, what a great way to burn up that free credit, courtesy of us, by uh, listening to the audiobook version of this fine book uh, by Messrs. Uh, Bob and Byron Motley. So uh, there's no excuse not to get uh, a version of this book. Hell, you can give it in Kindle form, why don't you? Uh, but uh, you should definitely make it uh, worth your time. Uh, you will enjoy it uh, again as much, hopefully, maybe even more as uh, than I as and then as I did. There you go. Whatever. You know what I mean. Uh, you also know what I mean when I say thanks for checking out our website. Just generally, you'll find all of our old episodes uh, there to stream or download. And again, that's goodseatsstillavailable.com. You can uh, find our social media feeds on Twitter where Good Seats Still. Uh, you can find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. There's a page devoted to us there. You can send us email from the website or just directly if you want to at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And hell, why not even sign up for our weekly newsletter? Why don't you be the first on your block uh, before the uh, the hoi polloi to find out what's going to be dropping this coming week and uh, all of our great episodes yet to come. So uh, you can do all those uh, fun things uh, from the website there uh, or directly uh, as you may choose. And uh, Byron, uh, of course, is uh, uh, the Renaissance man. He's got so much entertainment stuff out there. Uh, he is a uh, dynamic singer. He uh, has backed up folks like Barry Manilow and Barbara Streisand and Dionne Warwick, of course, and Celine Dion. Uh, you can check out uh, his music, uh, his photography, and uh, maybe even some tidbits about the uh, the films that we are eagerly awaiting uh, on the uh, the history of the uh, Negro Leagues and and also the story of Effa Manley. All of that stuff and more can be found on his website at byronmotley.com. That's B-Y-R-O-N, Motley, M-O-T-L-E-Y.com, byronmotley.com. I'm sure he'll be glad you did. And as we uh, say goodbye to you, uh, we're going to leave you with a, a cut from uh, Byron's, uh, I think it's 2008, if I'm not mistaken, album, Jazz and Cocktails. And I thought this was the uh, probably the most appropriate song to uh, send us out on. It's uh, it's the cover of the great Woodrow Buddy Johnson and Count Basie composition and compilation from 1949. It's Byron's cover version of Did You See Jackie Robinson Hit That Ball? We leave you with this fine tune finally done by Byron Motley. And uh, we thank you for listening. And until next week, take care, everybody. It went zooming across the left field wall. Yeah, boy. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Jack hit that ball. 
And when he swung his bat, the crowd went wild because he knocked that ball a solid mile. Yeah, boy. Oh, yeah. Yes, Jack hit that ball. Well, now Satchel Page is mellow, so is Campanello, Newcomb and Dolby, too. But it's a natural fact when Jackie comes to bat, the other team is through. Now, did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? I mean, he hit it, yeah, and that ain't all. He's so home. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Jackie's showing up gone. Before he made the majors, he was one of the players in the Negro Leagues. With Satchel Page and Josh double duty and cool pop, must have been something to see. That's what my daddy told me, yeah. Now did you see Jackie Robinson hit that bump? He really hit it. Oh yeah, and that ain't all. He's no home. He's no home. Jack is showing sure up gone. Hey now, Jackie. 